Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 159, Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi and welcome to you all, whether you are a regular returning listener, whether you're an irregular returning listener, or whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast and thank you for being here for this episode. Now, this episode is a nanorama. The nanorama returns. I'm going to explain what a nanorama is. But I just wanted to say that I did say last episode on Team America World Police that there would be no episode this week. And I just wanted to explain, really for regular listeners, I didn't lie. I just had this crazy idea. And the crazy idea turned into this episode. So what I did was I have actually had a break this week. And I basically made my break week one day shorter than a normal week and so I had six days off instead of seven but I figured you know nanoramas are fairly quick to put together that's the point of these episodes and so I figured give the people what they want test their might and all of that and interestingly one of the last dual nanorama episodes that I did was Alien vs Predator and Aliens vs Predator Requiem the first of which was directed by a guy called Paul W.S. Anderson I was followed by a sequel that was much maligned compared to the first. Is this, is this the same episode, but just for different movies? Anyway, so another other episode, they're basically shorter episodes. They focus on tidbits of interesting stories and information from the movies that 
I'm being honest, I'm never going to get a full episode dedicated to them. As much as I love Mortal Kombat and I really do enjoy Mortal Kombat, it's never going to get a full verbal diorama episode. But I still feel like these two movies deserve a mention. So I kind of call this the honourable mentions section of verbal diorama. And now nanoramas, they can be one movie. A recent example was Toy Story 4. That was technically a nanorama episode. But generally, I like to put two movies together. And normally those movies are duologies that maybe didn't get the love that they deserved at the time. And very much so with Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Especially Annihilation, which I'm obviously going to come to. But I kind of figure, you know, if this is the honourable mentions section of Bevel Diorama, what is more honourable? than a tournament to decide the future of humanity. And because these movies take the opportunity to play the epic theme song all the time, I'm going to as well, because I normally play trailers, but no one cares about the trailers for these movies. They only care about the music. So first up in this tournament, it's M versus Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Combat is an ancient tournament which takes place in a distant land, in which the Outworld's best warriors fight against Earth's best warriors. If the Outworld wins the tournament ten times in a row, it can enter Earth and rule it. The Outworld won the nine previous tournaments, so only one victory is left. Three unknowing martial artists are summoned to compete in the tournament, whose outcome will decide the fate of the world. Mwahahaha. As always, we'll quickly run through the cast. We have Christopher Lambert as Lord Raiden, Robin Shu as Liu Kang, Lyndon Ashby as Johnny Cage, Bridget Wilson as Sonya Blade, Talisa Soto as Kitana, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa as Shang Tsung, and Trevor Goddard as Kano. We also have Tom Woodruff Jr., who was also in aforementioned Alien vs. Predator, as the physical performance for Goro, and Kevin Michael Richardson as the voice of Goro, and you know me, if you're a regular listener, you know I'm going to be talking about Goro. Mortal Kombat was written by Kevin Droney, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, and based on Mortal Kombat by Ed Boon and John Tobias. And Mortal Kombat has an incredibly rich history, with plenty of lore that I'm neither qualified to tell, nor have the time in a short episode to go into. Just a little bit of history on me. I played a lot of video games. I grew up on Sega and Nintendo consoles and similarly the movies inspired by them. I still love Super Mario Brothers, even though I admit it's not a great movie. I still love it. I have a lot of fondness for it. Video game movies, by the very logic of the world they come from, generally have very little narrative. You know, Mario needs to save Princess Peach and that's kind of it. But Mortal Kombat actually had a story and a reason for all the fighting. Now I'm going to preface this by stating 
I didn't play Mortal Kombat all that much because I was a Tekken girl. I was a Street Fighter girl. And then later, when Dreamcast came along, I was a Soul Calibur girl. But I've always loved fighting games and I've always actually been really good at them as well. Mortal Kombat was always the controversial cousin because of all the blood and gore. And I am going to come back to the controversies in a little bit, but I did occasionally play Mortal Kombat. And it's easy to forget how influential the series actually was since its initial release in 1992. Not just for its blood and gore, but for its fatalities, which, due to the controversy surrounding Mortal Kombat in 1992, Mortal Kombat 2 introduced friendship moves and babalities to appease the outraged parents. Mortal Kombat is still the best-selling fighting game franchise of all time, selling over 73 million copies. It was also the first video game to include a secret character. That secret character is Reptile. We are going to be talking a little bit about Reptile. Mortal Kombat has been extensively criticised for its use of graphic and bloody violence and led to the creation of the Entertainment Software Ratings Board in the US and Canada, along with Night Trap. But Mortal Kombat was regularly cited in news reports as encouraging children to be violent and aggressive, with violent video games blamed for real-life violent acts like shootings. Mortal Kombat has been censored or banned in a number of countries, and the franchise has been the subject of numerous legal battles. Every Mortal Kombat game was banned in Germany for 10 years until 2015. Mortal Kombat 9 is likewise outlawed in Brazil and South Korea and was until February 2013 in Australia. Indonesia, Japan, mainland China and Ukraine have all banned Mortal Kombat 11, which is the latest in the franchise of currently, and I did count these, 23 games. So the general consensus of this particular version of the story is that for 500 years, Goro has been undefeated in Mortal Kombat and has won the tournament for nine generations. This plot formed the basis of Mortal Kombat, the original game, and for the movie version, which kind of takes bits from Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat 2. The original game was a pretty standard response to Capcom's Street Fighter 2, which had been a huge hit in 1991. The original Street Fighter came out in 1987. I was a huge fan of both of those. Unlike Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat would use digitised versions of real actors. Publisher Midway had tasked creators Ed Boon and John Tobias, along with artist John Vogel and sound designer Dan Forden, to create a game reportedly based on Universal Soldier, the Jean-Claude Van Damme action movie. And Van Damme would serve as the basis for the character of Johnny Cage. The original Mortal Kombat game had a production budget of $1 million and was developed in 10 months with an all-male demo version becoming popular in the Midway offices. It was this popularity that not only led to the creation of Sonya Blade as a playable character, but also introduced the game to someone pivotal to the story of the movie. And this is where I bring in Lawrence Kasanov. So he was a bit of a pioneer in the early 90s, and he produced the arcade game version of Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which was a massive hit in 1991. It broke records at the time, and this game was also developed by Midway. The game of Terminator 2 Judgment Day was being worked on at the same time as the movie, which was pretty revolutionary at the time. While visiting the Midway offices in June 1993, Kasanoff was told about this new game that they'd made, which was going to be way bigger than Terminator 2, Mortal Kombat. And he was given the chance to have a go on the game, which had been out for about a year in arcades and had basically become a bit of a worldwide phenomenon with kids desperate to play it and parents desperate to not allow their kids to play it, which made it all the more enticing for kids to play it. Kasanov was enthralled by the game 
and he had a brainwave. He envisaged this huge multimedia franchise, starting with a movie he coined as Star Wars meets Enter the Dragon. Mortal Kombat 2 was in the production phase at the time of his visit, and originally Midway executive Neil Dina Castro thought he was talking crap. After three months of negotiations, and despite the box office bomb that was Super Mario Brothers, which had come out in the May of 1993, Midway agreed to give Kasanov the film and TV rights to Mortal Kombat, but only for a limited period. New Line Cinema greenlit the movie despite their reservations, but the reactions from most on the prospect of a Mortal Kombat movie were positive. Directors were submitting themselves for consideration, but it was unknown director Paul W.S. Anderson and his directorial debut Shopping, which caught the eye of associate producer Laurie Apellion. Anderson was a fan of the game, and would sign up to the movie with enthusiasm and suggest with enthusiasm on how to make the movie authentic. He had no experience with visual effects, so he bought books on matte paintings and CGI. Screenwriter Kevin Droney started writing the script in earnest while they were in pre-production, which creators Boone and Tobias had input in to keep the tone of the characters in check. Initial versions had a more comical Vaden, which Boone and Tobias put their foot down on, and the actors were actually encouraged to ad-lib as well. The movie would take characters and elements from both Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat 2. And I think everyone knows that Cameron Diaz was supposed to be in this movie and was cast as Sonya Blade after they saw dailies of her breakthrough role in The Mask, but Diaz ended up breaking her wrist. So they reapproached Bridget Wilson, who had agreed to a role in Billy Madison after being passed over on the Sonya role in favour of Diaz. Her first day of filming Mortal Kombat was the day after she finished filming Billy Madison, so her fight scene with Kano was one of the last films because she trained during production and her fighting is probably the weakest in the movie, but I think we can cut to a little slack that she hardly had any time to train. I also think mostly everyone knows that the director of Johnny Cage's fake movie was supposed to be Steven Spielberg, but he was too busy to cameo. He was apparently a big fan of the games though. Robin Shu heard about casting for Liu Kang through a friend and thought the idea of a video game movie was dumb, but went to audition anyway, he ended up reading for the part of Liu Kang seven times. He described the audition process as gruelling. And Robin Shu had starred in Hong Kong martial arts movies and also had suggestions for fight choreographer Pat Johnson. Johnson would choreograph the fights, but Shu could add little details and had input on those fight scenes. They also hired some of the best martial artists in the world to have in the movie and write and choreograph the fight scenes to their particular set of skills. When it came to casting the part of Raiden, they originally inquired about Sean Connery, but instead they went with his Highlander co-star Christopher Lambert, who is literally the biggest name in this movie, and Lambert only had a deal to film for four or five weeks for a set amount of money and wouldn't originally be shooting any scenes in Thailand. The plan originally was to shoot in Thailand with a double for wide shots, but when Lambert found out, he insisted on going to Thailand for free to finish his Raiden scenes, he also paid for the rap party out of his own pocket too. And when this movie is on location in Thailand, it's quite gorgeous actually, because let's be honest, Thailand is a very pretty country. Filming locations in Thailand included the Wat Phra Sin Samphet, Wat Chal Wat Naram, uh, Wat Ratchaparana temples, as well as Rayleigh Beach and the Phra Nang Beach. Locations were so remote, they were only accessible by canoe and facilities were built so that the cast and crew could relieve themselves without having to sail back to the mainland. The cinematographer for this movie was a guy called John R. Leonetti, and I'm going to be coming back to him a little bit later. One character, though, who didn't end up in Thailand was 
Goro. And unsurprisingly for regular listeners of this podcast, I love Goro. I think Goro is the best thing in this whole movie. It's a really impressive animatronic. For the video game, Goro had been digitized stop-motion animation using a detailed 12-inch clay maquette, unlike the other characters who were, as I said, based on real actors. For the movie Amalgamated Dynamics, who I love to talk about on this podcast, Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis constructed a complex $1 million animatronic that was worn by Woodruff and operated by 13 to 16 puppeteers. Goro could emote and interact in real time. There were cables trailing all over the set, and Goro did frequently break down as well. Despite Anderson's best efforts to block and shoot Goro in a way that accommodated the animatronic's constraints, Goro's screen time was originally supposed to be a lot more, but it had to be drastically reduced because of all the issues that they had with the animatronic. And because of the issues, they decided they couldn't take him to Thailand. So they ended up shooting all of Goro's scenes in Los Angeles. And while Goro was a practical puppet, they did use a little CG to help with his lip movements and synchronization. Production designer Jonathan A. Carlson was stopped from including intricate koi ponds on his set. Just in case the Gora animatronic fell into the water and short-circuited all the electrics. A full-sized animatronic puppet with moving arms and legs was also created for when Goro falls to his death. In 2011, NetherRealm Studios, which is what became of Midway post its acquisition by Warner Brothers, acquired the animatronic Goro head and it is now on display at their Chicago HQ. And I'm not going to dwell on the CG in this movie because I think I'd be here for a long time if I did, but the CG in this movie may not be great. But there was some real talent behind the scenes. And this is something that I'm going to keep coming back to. There was real talent behind the scenes on both of these movies. One of those was Alison Savage. And she was the visual effects supervisor and associate producer. She'd also worked on The Abyss, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. There's that movie again. Bram Stoker's Dracula and Last Action Hero. The latter two have episodes on this podcast. They're episode 118 and 107, by the way. But unfortunately, the budget didn't allow for flawless CG effects. And bear in mind as well, this was 1995. And CG effects weren't actually that great back then. What was great is the practical effects in this movie, I think, really do hold up, especially Goro. And the fact that a lot of the people in this movie did their own stunts. But because they did their own stunts, there were a lot of unsaid injuries. Bridget Wilson dislocated her shoulder. Lyndon Ashby suffered bruised kidneys. Robert Shue fractured two ribs. Carried on filming, finished the scene, and then went to hospital. And while the Mortal Kombat game was definitely not suitable for children, the film would be. And this was because they made a decision very early on when they decided to make this movie that they wanted a PG-13 rating. But they wanted this rating while staying as true to the video game as possible. So they liaised extensively with the NPA to learn the specific limitations of the rating and tried to creatively optimise the amount of violence and bad language in the film within those constraints. Unlike something like Team America World Police. For example, they discovered that the PG-13 rating prohibits on-screen death of a human character. And so basically they had all the non-human deaths like Goro, take place on screen instead and human deaths took place off screen. When it came to testing the movie with audiences, the response they got was clear. And no, it wasn't, this movie is terrible. People actually really loved this movie, but they basically said they wanted more fights. 
which meant several reshoots, including an extended fight between Johnny Cage and Scorpion, and an extended fight scene between Liu Kang and Reptile, but Reptile is a man, so you know the scene where Reptile goes in that corpse and becomes a man? That was basically the reshoot. Both of these reshoots were, interestingly, choreographed by Robin Shu. And while this movie was, and still is, criticised, especially for its 90s CGI, which is very 90s, but I kind of forgive it because I just think this movie is so fun and so cheesy. It's also praised for its fight choreography and set design. On a $20 million budget, this movie made $122.2 million worldwide. It was released in August 1995. It stayed at number one in the US box office for three weeks. And the legacy of this movie is really interesting because you look at a character like Shang Tsung and Harry Hiroyuki Tagawa's with Shang Tsung is now the Shang Tsung. The soundtrack is seen as one of the greatest movie soundtracks of all time. And, you know, this movie is still incredibly watchable, as long as you know what you're getting yourself into. And how could you not? Because this movie is supposed to be silly and fun, it also deeply respects its source material. Unlike something like Street Fighter, which basically just kind of took the names of the characters, I feel like Mortal Kombat actually tried to be as Mortal Kombat as it could possibly be by including those famous phrases like flawless victory and stuff like that when it wasn't a flawless victory kind of didn't really work but at least they tried you know and the script it's not great but at least they tried and Verbal Bear Armored gives points for trying and that's going to be really important when we come to what we're going to come to obviously we're going to talk about the sequel and Mortal Kombat was such a big hit that a sequel was immediately demanded. New Line immediately reached out to Paul W.S. Anderson, but he'd already decided to move on to Event Horizon, which has its own fascinating story, but that's for a future episode. Anderson would say, actually, he regretted not coming back for Mortal Kombat Annihilation and basically explained that his Resident Evil franchise was ironically a way for him to keep control over an ongoing franchise and to keep his vision intact. But for now, I'm going to keep Verbal Diorama's vision intact because for our final battle of this episode, it's going to be M versus Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Charles Warriors has only six days to save the Earth from invasion before the Elder Lords, the evil outworlders led by the mighty Shao Kahn, wreak havoc on Earth. Their gruesome goal is humanity's complete and utter extinction, but Earth's last and only hope is Liu Kang, Sonya Blade, Katana, Jax and Raiden. They're all that stand between life and annihilation. Dun dun dun. So, the cast of this movie, we have returning cast member Robin Shu as Liu Kang, returning cast member Talisa Soto as Kitana, 
and the rest of the cast are completely different. James Remar as Raiden, Sandra Hess as Sonya Blade, Lynn Red Williams as Jax, Brian Thompson as Shao Kahn, Rhina Schoen as Shinnok, Musata Vanda as Sindel, Arena Panteva as Jade. Also in this movie featuring stuntman Ray Park, aka Toad from X-Men or Darth Maul from Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, he was Raiden's stunt double as well as Raptor and Tarkatan. And also Tony Yar is in this movie. He is the double for Liu Kang. This screenplay for Mortal Kombat Annihilation was by Brett V. Friedman and Bryce Sable. Story by Lawrence Kasanoff, Joshua Wexler and John Tobias. It was directed by John R. Leonetti and based on Mortal Kombat by Ed Boon and John Tobias. So, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, where do we start? So I guess we should start with everyone getting promotions for this movie. Cinematographer John R. Leonetti became the director after Paul W.S. Anderson turned down the job to work on Event Horizon. The final scenes of Mortal Kombat, where Outworld Emperor Shao Kahn appears, become the start of this movie, thereby breaking the rules of Mortal Kombat and invading Earthrealm. This movie is loosely based on Mortal Kombat 3, featuring the characters from Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3, and while the previous movie featured a limited roster to please fans as well as casual cinema-goers, Annihilation really goes all out to please the fans. Not with an R rating though, the PG-13 rating remains. Lawrence Kasanov wanted to take the best elements from Mortal Kombat and make this film bigger. More fights, more special effects, more outworld. Three times more ambitious was his remit. And that started with getting his cast back on board for the sequel. Robin Shu and Talisa Soto signed up, but Lyndon Ashby reportedly walked away after realising Johnny Cage would die almost immediately. Bridget Wilson chose to star in I Know What You Did Last Summer instead. Its predecessor's biggest star, Christopher Lambert, also refused to return, being replaced by James Remar. The only other returning cast member was Keith Cook, but as a different character in the first film, he was Reptile, and here he portrays Sub-Zero. And you can comment on the many flaws of this movie till you're blue in the face because, objectively, this movie isn't great. But like all movies, there is worth and there's work going on here. John R. Leonetti was a huge fan of martial arts movies and wanted to push for a new genre of American martial arts films. He used point-of-view shots and wide-angle lenses close to the action to get that feel of martial arts movies. The Leonetti family are one of Hollywood's technological pioneers in the field of camera work. His father, Frank Leonetti, developed the Ultracam 35. John R. Leonetti was a student of John Frankenheimer. This guy may have been a first-time director, but he had industry knowledge and he really wanted to innovate with this movie. The team on Annihilation developed groundbreaking new motion capture techniques to generate characters like Mataro, a sort of half-man, half-beast, sensual-type character. A tiger tail was filmed and used as a reference for Mataro's tail. The special effects team on Annihilation was led by Chuck Kamiski, who'd also worked on Terminator 2 3D and The Addams Family, as well as Alison Savage, who, as I said, worked on the previous movie. Pat Johnson was also promoted from stunt choreographer to second unit director for Annihilation, which meant the position was open for Robin Shute to become stunt choreographer. But he was overworked as both actor and choreographer, meaning that Tony Yar had to step in on some of his scenes to double as him because he was off shooting other scenes. Filming started on Mortal Kombat Annihilation in early 1996. They filmed in location again in Thailand, as well as in Jordan and London and Anglesey as well. The production budget was upped from the previous movie to $30 million. 
And the idea was that if they could do all these CG characters or CG enhanced characters, then they would. They boasted about having 300 completely digital shots, far above the average for films in Annihilation's $30 million budget range. According to executive producer and visual effects supervisor Alison Savage, Annihilation also takes advantage of another industry advancement, communication technology, which offers filmmakers full connectivity with top technical personnel around the world. Producers gathered a team of individual animators and motion capture specialists from around the world and connected them using Sprint's Drums technology, a production tool that allows collaboration, real-time conferencing, and viewings of clips by multiple participants at different locations. This was basically the year of 2020 and 2021, where we were all working from home, but back in 1996. And using this technology meant they were able to pick personnel or facilities that were desired according to their specific demands and at a fair cost. They were able to use more than 500 workers in digital facilities all over the world. The end product, according to the producers, will be a film that depicts the character's extraordinary abilities and movements in greater complexity and depth that was feasible even two years ago. They included the example of the fight scene between the digital dragon and the digital six-headed hydra as a good example of this, but I'm going to come back to that towards the end because I think we all know that probably doesn't look that great. Alison Savage would say to Variety in 1997, digital characters have interacted before, but never in such a complex way as a martial arts fight and never for such an extended sequence. By utilizing motion capture to make the movements realistic and processing the shots on deck alphas, we were able to create what we think is incredibly realistic digital character interaction. The combat sequence between the characters Jax and Mataro is another example. Actor Lynn Red Williams plays Jax and is pitted against the digital Mataro. The sequence is unique in that Mortal Kombat filmmakers shot the live action scene on location in central Thailand while also recording the motions of real martial artists to feed in the computer model of Mataro. Traditionally, motion capture scenes were only shot in studio and never at the same time as the scene in which they would appear. Under the direction of William Plant, who previously worked at the Henson Creature Shop, the Mortal Kombat Annihilation team hired motion capture professionals from around the world and developed a system for shooting the scene and motion at the same time on location, resulting in what Savage refers to as live-action motion capture. Plant's crew were also in charge of studio motion capture work for additional scenes. Unfortunately, what this meant was that characters like four-armed warrior Shiva ended up having most of her scenes cut due to the expense of creating her extra CG arms. Shiva ends up dying, being crushed by a rock, because they simply couldn't afford to have her in the movie anymore. The sheer amount of characters with little to no exposition or explanation for the casual viewer meant essentially this movie does an excellent job at one thing, alienating all viewers. It tries to add so much to the Mortal Kombat lore, such as animalities, into an already stuffed movie with so many fight scenes that literally make no sense. This movie also contains 54 flips in its 95-minute runtime. That's 1.75 flips a minute, which is quite impressive, but honestly not as impressive as the sheer amount of work that was going on behind the scenes in this movie. And I think sometimes we forget... And it's really easy to forget that even movies that you don't like objectively, even movies that you think are bad objectively, there's still work that goes on behind the scenes. And I don't think there was a cast and crew that worked as hard as they did on Mortal Kombat Annihilation to make it a good movie. 
It doesn't necessarily mean they made a good movie. It doesn't necessarily mean they made a movie that made sense. But there was a lot of innovation going on behind the scenes in this movie. There was a lot of technological advances going on behind the scenes in this movie that we don't see for one main reason. And that is, according to Leonetti and some of the rest of the crew, the movie that New Line released of Mortal Kombat Annihilation was actually an unfinished work print. The effects in the movie weren't the finished product. Because this was the version that was given to test audiences, who reportedly reacted positively, New Line decided to release Mortal Kombat Annihilation as it was, rather than finish what they had. And Kasanov mentions in the book, Lights, Camera, Game Over, How Video Game Movies Get Made, that the film was released unfinished. He says, I'm telling you the effects in that movie are not the final effects. I never anticipated that someone would take the movie and go, it's good enough. We weren't done. We never finished that movie. But the studio said, we don't care. We sacrificed quality for business. Kasanov also commented in this book that perhaps promoting everyone from the first movie to new roles that they perhaps weren't experienced in wasn't the best idea. As well as maybe they could have waited six months for certain people like Christopher Lambert to become available, waiting to get a good script in place, waiting to get the best possible people for the roles, maybe not including 22 characters from the games, because that's one new character introduced every four minutes. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. And it's really easy to see that Mortal Kombat Annihilation may not have ever been great, but it may have been better had it actually been given that time to be better. There is real innovation and honestly actual promise here. It's tiny, but it's there. The ambition was so much greater than the actual talent. And I actually feel quite bad saying that because I know I couldn't make a film this good. But this is the ultimate fan service movie. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because some movies work really well as fan service because they know exactly what they need to be. And Mortal Kombat Annihilation is trying to be so many things to so many people. It's failing at almost every turn. It wasn't a huge financial flop though. It did recoup $51.4 million on its $30 million budget. And it also opened at number one for one week. The same week actually as Alien Resurrection did. But critically... Let's just be nice and say critics really, really didn't like it. Much less than its predecessor, which was a middling success with critics, just for really being cheesy and camp. Even co-creators Ed Boon and John Tobias called Mortal Kombat Annihilation out as their personal worst moments in the history of their work on the whole Mortal Kombat franchise. But if you are willing to give Annihilation a second chance, start with an article in the show notes from Dom O'Brien. Dom really loves this movie. And believe me when I say that I genuinely do think that there is worth in every movie that's out there. And Dom actually does a really good job of showing the positivity that's out there for Mortal Kombat Annihilation. So I'll pop that in the show notes. Please have a read of his article. And obviously, there was supposed to be a third movie in this franchise. Robin Shu had a three-picture deal. New Line Cinema had been working on a third Mortal Kombat film for years hoping to make up for the terrible reception to Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Mink was hired to direct, then Russell Mulcahy was hired to replace him. The script, titled Mortal Kombat Devastation, was written by Sean Catherine Derrick and Lawrence Kasanov, and would have seen Johnny Cage resurrected to aid the heroes in their fight against Quan Chi, who did originally appear in Annihilation but had his scenes cut, and also resurrected Shang Tsung. It languished in development hell for years, 
Hurricane Katrina destroyed most of the planned filming locations, according to cast member Chris Casamassa, who would have reprised his original role of Scorpion. Warner Brothers became the parent company of New Line in 2008 and purchased most of Midway's assets, which included Mortal Kombat. A third film, an R-rated gory reboot, which is actually quite good and I enjoyed a lot, came out in 2021. That movie is currently getting a sequel, which hopefully should also be good. And just to quickly talk about the other Mortal Kombat things that are out there, obviously, aside from the games, Mortal Kombat Defenders of the Realm was an animated series in 1996. Mortal Kombat Conquest was a prequel released in 1998. Mortal Kombat Rebirth was an eight-minute web short that originally served as a pitch to Warner Brothers by Kevin Tanchuran and led to Mortal Kombat Legacy in 2011 and the second season in 2013. And really, this is the story of the movie that broke the video game film adaptation curse. Mortal Kombat. And then the one that succumbed to the video game adaptation curse. Mortal Kombat Annihilation. All in one franchise. Thank you for listening and I would love to hear your thoughts on Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation and I would especially love to know if you feel like my viewpoint on Annihilation has changed your viewpoint on Annihilation. Would you give Annihilation another chance? If you do want to, it is available on Amazon Prime Video. They are both available actually on Amazon Prime Video here in the UK to stream for free. So that's where I watched them and I watched them pretty much back to back. And it was an experience. And as I said, I'm a fan of the 1995 movie. I wouldn't even call it a guilty pleasure because I'm not guilty. <laughs> I don't feel guilty about that. I just really love it. And this was my first time watching Mortal Kombat Annihilation. And honestly, my first reaction when I finished watching it was that made me laugh. And it's really not as bad as people say it is. Because I do think that movies like this, the legend of being a bad movie, often doesn't transcend to being a really bad movie. There are definitely redeeming features for Annihilation and I'm really curious to see if anyone else agrees with the fact that I think it's redeemable knowing what you now know about this movie and about the innovations they tried to do. Everyone loves a trier. Mortal Kombat Annihilation is one of the biggest triers out there. And I think I kind of said the same thing in the Alien vs Predator episode talking about Aliens vs Predator Requiem in the it is a triumph and everyone loves a triumph. Well, I do. Anyway, now this episode wasn't supposed to be an Anorama episode. It was supposed to be a full episode, but as I said, I had a break week and I didn't have time to put a full episode together. So I am actually going to be coming out next with another Nanorama episode. This one was planned and I always wanted to do an episode on two of the most fun adventure romantic comedies of the 80s, Romancing the Stone and The Jewel of the Nile. So... They are going to be coming next. This episode comes out on the Thursday and that episode is going to be coming out on the following Monday because Nanoramas do tend to be on Mondays, but I brought this out on the Thursday because, yeah, I just didn't want to have too much of a break between episodes because I like putting stuff out for you guys. If you have enjoyed this episode, then please take a moment to help Verbal Diorama grow, be noticed by others. You can leave a rating or review. You can retweet or like post on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. You can also tell your friends and family, especially if they're like Mortal Kombat, which a lot of people do because it's super fun. You can get in touch with me on social media. You can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can go to my website, verbaldiorama.com. I don't like to do 
a huge normal end of episode thing for nanoramas because they're supposed to be small, but it's not turning out to be that small this episode. But I just want to say, as always, a huge thank you to the patrons at Verbal Diorama. You can join them if you wish, verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And finally... Test your might. <laughs> Flawless victory. I don't have the voice. I don't have the deepness of my voice for this. Anyway, this has been fun. Let's watch Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. And But let's not fight each other because fighting's bad. But let's fight each other on video games because that's fun. And if anyone wants to take me on, on like Tekken or Street Fighter, then let me know. <laughs> Bye. Blue vision.